Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, August 18th, 2023. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a report on a new gateway monument at Miller Showers Park. More in the bottom half of our program. Mostly it's about building intentional relationships to help families who may feel like they don't have a village or support. And it also gives us tools to work through our trauma. That's Shakay Norris and Eliza Carey from the Thriving Connections Project at South Central Community Action Program, helping local families connect to allies and build pathways out of poverty. Hear their story later in the show on a new episode of Activate. But first, this announcement. Today marks the first full week of WFHB's Fall Fun Drive. The WFHB Local News, our daily award-winning news program, is your trusted source for staying informed about our community. Our dedicated volunteers, who are also community members, work tirelessly every day to cover local government, dive into in-depth news features, and bring you the latest updates on what is happening in the community around you. Community radio is a rare gem and stations like WFHB with news departments are even rarer. We take immense pride in upholding WFHB's longstanding tradition of a vibrant news and public affairs department. But to ensure the continuation of WFHB's many essential local news and public affairs programs, we need your support. You are the driving force behind community radio and your pledge today can help keep it alive and thriving. During today's broadcast, we need to raise $100 in support of our fall fund drive. Your contribution can have a significant impact. Simply call 812-323-1200 and make a pledge as soon as possible. Again, that is 812-323-1200. Also, visit our website at wfhb.org and click on the red donate button to pledge your support online. Thank you for being a dedicated listener and for generously supporting WFHB, your community radio station. Together, we can ensure our community remains connected and well-informed. At its September 13th meeting, the Bloomington City Council heard an ordinance that would ban public right-of-way obstructions. City Clerk Nicole Bolden presented the ordinance. Ordinance 2320 to amend Title 12 of the Bloomington Municipal Code entitled Streets, Sidewalks, and Storm Sewers regarding establishing a new section 12.04.130 entitled Obstructing the Right-of-Way. <clears throat> Excuse me. The synopsis is as follows. Ordinance 2320 clarifies that placing obstructions within the public's right-of-way or otherwise obstructing the public's right-of-way is impermissible, and the ordinance defines the circumstances under which the right-of-way is considered to be obstructed. 
City Attorney Mike Rucker explained some background and context behind the drafting of the ordinance, saying he believes this to be an issue of accessibility. Uh, ordinance 2320 proposes adding a new section to the municipal code titled Obstructing the Right-of-Way. Ordinance 2320 is modeled on Indianapolis's ordinances and comes to the City Council on the Board of Public Works' unanimous recommendation. In legal terms, the public right-of-way provides a right of passage to all persons. Conceptually, public right-of-way exists to let all members of the community travel from one place to another. One of the core missions of local governments like Bloomington, going back for centuries into the mists of time, is to properly establish and then responsibly steward the public's right-of-way so that it remains open and accessible for public travel. Earlier this year, an obstruction was placed within the city's right-of-way. By itself, the appearance of an obstruction in the right-of-way was not remarkable. Obstructions aren't uncommon. Generally, obstructions are managed and addressed through a simple conversation between a staff member and the person responsible for the obstruction. Staff may even assist in identifying a possible solution to eliminate the obstruction. Generally, the obstruction gets removed and then life goes on as normal. However, in this particular instance, the person responsible for the obstruction indicated that they simply would not remove the obstruction, and the blockage persisted for days. The public certainly noticed. That left the city in the difficult position of either allowing the obstruction to persist or asking law enforcement to remove the obstruction. Of course, because protecting the public right-of-way is a core mission, the city tried to coordinate with law enforcement to address the blockage. Staff reached out to law enforcement for help. However, law enforcement indicated that they could not address right-of-way obstructions absent a more specific ordinance defining when the right-of-way would be considered blocked. The city was specifically directed to Indianapolis's ordinance for guidance on a way to more clearly indicate to the public when and how the right-of-way would be considered blocked. Therefore, staff reviewed Indianapolis's ordinance and drafted and brought Ordinance 2320 to the Board of Public Works for consideration, where it was unanimously recommended for approval by the City Council. That's the basic genesis of Ordinance 2320. But I think we should also talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts. Ordinance 2320 defines the circumstances under which a street, sidewalk, or public right-of-way is considered obstructed. The ordinance states that a sidewalk street or right-of-way is obstructed if, number one, more than half its width is blocked at any point, number two, the normal flow of pedestrians or vehicles is disrupted, number three, pedestrians are compelled to step onto the street or otherwise expose themselves to danger in order to pass around the blockage, or number four, if it is rendered inaccessible to those protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. The four criteria in Ordinance 2320 set a reasonable measure for when the right-of-way is considered obstructed. Note also that Ordinance 2320 prioritizes education. The ordinance requires the city to give a member of the public an opportunity to adjust an obstruction so that it's compliant with Ordinance 2320 as a first step in every single case. Staff recommends that the Council pass Ordinance 2320. I appreciate the Council's consideration, and I'm happy to address any questions you may have to the best of my ability. Council member Jim Sims asked whether the ordinance would include electric scooters in determining an obstruction of the public right-of-way. Rooker responded. Thank you for the report, Mr. Rooker. Um, based on your definition of obstruction or obstructed, does that apply to scooters as well that block sidewalks? Yeah. And, so and, will, and will we approach that with the same fervor that we're talking about in this ordinance? Yeah. So. Certainly scooters are, are covered by a far more explicit regime, and I think 
The number of conversations that have happened related to shared-use motorized scooters are extensive, so we've taken a lot of concrete measures just in the last couple of months to attempt to address those. You may have noticed downtown there are now 68 corrals in place between 3rd and 12th and, I think, uh, Morton and Indiana Street to address the, you know, to, to give a place for scooters to be placed specifically. Uh, that's safe. Uh, this month, September, we sent a series of notices of violation to each of the scooter companies related to violations uh, for illegally parked scooters. Uh, Lime received a notice of violation totaling $2,760, Bird totaling $2,220, VO Ride totaling $870. Uh, we have three temporary part-time employees whose job it is is to go around to identify scooter violations and to remedy them. I think just a couple weeks ago during the Public Works budget presentation, Director Wason uh, requested, and I, I think it was met with a positive reaction, uh, the, the employment of two people full-time beginning in January to address scooter violations. So uh, we're taking concrete measures on that front. We wouldn't look to Ordinance 2320 to set the standard for when a scooter is parked illegally. We have a far more specific ordinance uh, that addresses that in Title IV. Vice President of the Council, Isabel Piedmont-Smith, questioned the impetus behind the ordinance, asking how often the sidewalk has been obstructed in the last year. Roker addressed Piedmont-Smith's inquiry. So it's my understanding um, that the current legislation was prompted by one incident of somebody who refused to move. Is that correct, or were there multiple? Yeah, I certainly wouldn't describe it that way. It was prompted by the discovery that um, in the event we have somebody who puts, a, let's say, a table up blocking across the right-of-way and somebody uh, who has mobility problems, who's protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act, couldn't utilize a public facility like a sidewalk, we discovered that we would not be able to remove that obstruction, uh, that it would be a challenge to get that obstruction off the sidewalk absent the voluntary assistance of the person who created the obstruction. So the, the idea here is we have to have a mechanism in our code in that circumstance, which is admittedly rare, but nonetheless very possible and is something we have experienced. In that circumstance, we have to have a way to, to make the public right-of-way available for the public to use for its intended purpose, which is travel. So again, how often has it happened that uh, somebody has blocked the sidewalk um, compared to the number of times scooters have blocked sidewalks outside the downtown area. And I, I certainly am not equipped to give you numbers on that, so. Okay, let's scrap the comparison. How many times has this, like in the last year, let's say, has this been a problem that a sidewalk has been blocked and when asked, the person did not remove the blockage? In the last year, I can speak only for myself, what I'm aware of. I'm aware of a single incident where that happened. There may be other incidents where it happened that I'm not aware of, but I am aware of a single incident where it happened. That, of course, is quite concerning when we discover we don't have the tools to do our core mission, 
which is to make sure that when somebody is, is needing to get down the sidewalk to get where they're going, they simply can't do it without engaging in a dangerous practice. When we discover something like that, when it's related to a core mission like maintaining the public right-of-way, that's a situation where we immediately look to examine why we don't have the mechanisms in place. We look at what other communities have done, and so we looked, of course, right away at what Indianapolis had done to address this exact situation, and we, we took steps to mirror that based on their experience. During public comment, one local resident said he believes the legislation would negatively impact vulnerable populations in the community. Good evening. My name is Paulie Terracone. I've been in Bloomington about 10 years. Um, so I, like many, are, I'm sensitive to the need for unfettered access to all of our public spaces. Um, it's important to remember that public critical po component of what defines public is that it is non-exclusionary. Um, and I think that this legislation as it is written is in fact exclusionary. Um, I think it fails to provide adequate enforcement measures and clearly define them. Uh, it, it opens up additional policing of already vulnerable people without necessarily giving them an opportunity to access local resources. Um, I think the legislation as is is short-sighted to the nuance of the issue at hand. Uh, I think the issue is legitimate, and I think it bears some amount of response, but I think that uh, that the re there are resources out there from cities doing a better job than Indianapolis, frankly, and we as a city ought to study those resources and create a more informed uh, potential solution to the issue that is uh, that we seek to address. Um, and really what this legislation needs is a clear nexus to services being offered and insured uh, to resolve obstructions and not simply punitive measures, again, to people who are already the most vulnerable among us. Thank you. Downtown Inc.'s Talisha Kopak said she supports the ordinance, saying she believes it would allow for greater accessibility in the downtown area. Um, good evening. This is Talisha Kopik. I'm with Downtown Bloomington, Inc. Uh, we're in favor of this ordinance and appreciate the city bringing it forward. Um, we've got a very active downtown and it's important to keep paths open for walkability of all ages and ADA accessibility. Um, Pop-up obstructions on sidewalks can get out of control pretty quickly and uh, affect the balance of multiple uses in the downtown area. You know, there's a whole group of people trying to keep things clean and picked up. And, you know, frankly, it gets very frustrating and a little bit overwhelming. And uh, um, it... Um, so anyway, all of us kind of working together for a clean and safe and maintained downtown is, is very important and appreciate your uh, consideration of this ordinance. Thank you. Concerned resident Tim Dwyer urged the council to vote no on the ordinance, saying that he believes the legislation would vilify people who are unhoused. I urge council to vote against this ordinance as written. Um, I'm very concerned uh, as somebody who is downtown every day of the week that the motivation for this is really about stemming the aesthetic issues of homelessness. Um, some of the commentary from the public and, and frankly, uh, harmful things I hear just walking down the street, people complaining about unhoused people being in public space is very concerning. And I... I think that is 
uh, a pretty clear focus of where the enforcement of this ordinance would go. This ordinance does not pretend to solve homelessness, and it certainly wouldn't. There are many other things that we could do, whether that be expanding social services that are overwhelmed as is or expanding housing opportunities that would do a much better job of helping get people off of the streets and prevent them from obstructing the public space. Um, I'm not sure, it was not widely reported, but about a week ago the Herald Times noted uh, that a woman uh, who was suffering from experiencing homelessness was found dead in the woods on the south side of Bloomington in a tent in one of these encampments that have become far too common. I think that is a very extreme, but a tragic example of what happens when we have uh, a public focus on pushing people experiencing homeless out of sight and out of mind. And I'm very concerned that this kind of legislation furthers that uh, goal to just push people out of space. Um, everyone has a right to the public space, even those experiencing homelessness, and we should do a much better job of seeking to provide them resources rather than this punishment system uh, should they occupy too much of the space. Um, thank you. The ordinance failed by a two to five to one vote. The Bloomington City Council will meet again on September 20th. Good afternoon. This is WFHB News Director Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. So, Noelle, today is our fall fund drive for WFHB Community Radio. Uh, I wanted to talk about that word community. Um, how do you think that word community applies to WFHB? Well, I'm glad you asked. So I personally think that one of the most valuable things that WFHB really brings to the table is this space in this place um, for, you know, some people in this town that I'm going to be a little scatterbrained here, but one of the things I always see on the Reddit is people saying in Bloomington, like, oh, if I'm not a part of IU, like, how can I meet people around town? Like, I'm in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s. Anybody want to meet up? And a lot of the times, like, you know, it's, it's kind of hard and there's not like a space or a place for them to, to meet. And I think here at WFHB, like, we provide this place that volunteers have built over the years provides, like, kinda, you know, a little bit of like a weird you know, demographic, you know, like like a very interesting group of people, a place and a space to meet up and meet each other where they might not have met otherwise. Oh, totally. I think that like sort of puts the community in community radio, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think it's a really special place um, people can meet. Absolutely. And so, Cade, you were kind of interested in talking to our lovely listeners about the value of our volunteer-powered news department. Absolutely. That's that's such a good question, Noel. I think the idea of citizen journalism, like just getting community members, uh, regular folks volunteering their time to take part in the news media. I mean, that is a really special thing. It's sort of like news for the people, by the people, you know, the fact that community members are engaging in, in doing that. I think that's so unique, so special. Um, and you're not just getting some like, talking head on a soapbox or something like you might get uh you know on on cable news you're getting community members that are volunteering their time uh dedicating their time for wfhb for community radio so you know that's like your neighbors your coworkers, your friends who care about a plethora of local mm -hmm. issues 
And, you know, you see that reflected in the programming, whether it's Bring It On, our Black Affairs program, uh, which you'll hear tonight at 6 p.m., Hola Bloomington, our Spanish-speaking show, uh, which happens on Fridays, uh, Blooming Out, our LGBTQIA plus affairs show. It's just a testament to what makes volunteer-powered community radio so diverse, so unique, and so special. And so WPHB needs your help to continue to provide this space, this place, and this programming. And so we would just, our goal for the show is $100, and we've got a phone catcher um, out there waiting to hear from you. His name is Darren, and he's just very excited to maybe take your call, or maybe if you're, I'm, sometimes I can be a little phone shy, um, was not raised to make a phone call ever. Uh, so if you're more comfortable going online, you can do that at WFHB.org, or you can call us at 812-323-1200. That is, again, 812-323-1200. And today's been a little slow. I know it's Monday. It's been a little slow, but we want to hear from you. Uh, and if you're out there, you're listening, we would love to give you a shout out on the air. Noel, mm-hmm. I think we should say the number one more time. I just agree. to reiterate, you want to say this? Yeah, song? do you want, if you have your phone out or maybe, you know, you're driving and you you want to pull over or, you know, wait till you get home. Uh, it's kind of a little catchy. 812-323-1200. Yes. Come on. Give us a call. You can also We'd visit. We'd love to hear. Oh, Absolutely. Sorry. No, no, you're not. <laughs> we, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to announce it. We really, it's kind of like the most fun part of this. So just like selfishly, I would just, I would, I would love, I love, I love a phone call. Absolutely. So 812-323-1200. You could also visit WFHB.org. Click the big red donate button and support us during our fall fun drive. In today's feature report, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin provides a report on a new gateway monument at Miller Showers Park. This comes from the B-Square Bulletin's Morning Bulletin. We turn to Dave Askins for more. The B-Square Bulletin sends out an emailed morning bulletin every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can sign up for the morning bulletin by visiting bsquarebulletin.com and clicking on the tab labeled subscribe. Here's an entry from the most recent edition. The headline to this item is, it could be worse. What about a billboard? The planned gateway monolith on the north end of Miller Showers Park has not received much good reaction from the community. For many residents, the postponement of right-of-way approvals by the Board of Public Works this past week was welcome news. The criticism includes the cost, which is about $400,000 for the fabrication of the monolith itself, as well as the artistic merit of the design. The Bloomington Arts Commission provided feedback on the design at its December 14, 2022 meeting, but that feedback was not exactly positive. So at its Wednesday meeting this past week, BAC members discussed how to put some distance between the project and the BAC because they did not support it and they did not fund it. They talked about how the city's news release was factually true, 
because the BAC did provide feedback on the project. But they joked that maybe future news releases should say, quote, BAC offered feedback and hated it, end quote. Sometime soon, BAC members might send a letter to the Parks Department outlining their concerns. Among the non-artist reactions I have seen on social media is the idea that the gateway design could not be any worse. I have accepted that challenge. I have mocked up a design for a Miller Showers gateway that would put a giant billboard there featuring an image of the monolith design and the welcoming message, if you lived here, you would already be home. I dare anyone to come up with a worse design than that. Now here's the thing about Bloomington billboards. By 2031, they might all disappear. That's if a proposed change to the city's Unified Development Ordinance, or UDO, is enacted. At its Monday meeting this past week, the Plan Commission had a first hearing on the change to the UDO, which would ban billboards. The second Plan Commission hearing is set for October 9th. That means a billboard ban could be in front of the City Council before the end of the year. All right, until next week, this has been Dave Askins with the B-Square Bulletin for WFHB. Eliza Carey and Shakay Norris are living examples of the power of supportive relationships. Carrie and Norris are in the Thriving Connections Project at South Central Community Action Program. Thriving Connections pairs low-income households with middle-class allies. Together, they plot a course out of poverty, and along the way, something else tends to happen. Meaningful friendships. Hear all about it in a new episode of Activate, coming your way right now on the WFHB Local News. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm Shakae Norris. Hi, I'm Eliza Carey. And we're from Thriving Connections. Thriving Connections is under South Central Community Action Program, um, and it is off of West 15th. We are a part of SCAP, but we are kind of our own entity. But SCAP is like our father program, like we are through them. Yes. Mostly it's about building intentional relationships to help families who may feel like they don't have a village or support, um, have support not by like giving a handout, but by like a hand up or like with advice or standing beside you just having your back. Um, And it also gives us tools to work through our trauma. It gives us the tools to work through life daily. It's a 20-week training. Yes, 20 weeks. Um, and you basically, it's about learning about skills to make it out of poverty. The base and the foundation is starting with the information or like giving you the tools you need. And then when we say like they have your back or they're there for you, say like you're going through, like for me, it was an abusive relationship of marriage and they went to court with me. They just had my back. You know, you watch people go from like me being in a housing shelter to somewhere like now pursuing a career in tech, you know, which wouldn't be something I would do 
probably not alone, you know, trying to raise three kids. So it's just like having that relationship, like intentionally building them. Yes, definitely big on the support. Um, And like now I'm in school to uh, become an elementary education teacher. Um, So they're supporting me. They're checking in on me. um, And we also have something that we call our ships that we have allies. And we check in with them frequently um, on a monthly basis, actually. And they're a set of people who you can go to when you are in a situation and they just support you. We would love for people to come and either be community allies or choose to link up with the family. Um, we do have dinner every Thursday. Well, with since COVID, it's like sometimes dinner, sometimes Zoom meetings, but it's every Thursday. But the dinner is great because usually someone provides it, like a church or something, so you don't have to worry about cooking. We sit, we all have dinner together. Like, I mean, people say like it sounds too good to be true, but if you come and experience it, it's it's pretty good. Like, so maybe hanging out with the kids because our kids are also involved. We have um, AmeriCorps volunteers that come in, but we're always like looking for youth programming because we have different programming. If somebody doesn't want to get involved in the program, they could get involved by maybe offering programming on a Thursday. Um, that's something that they might think is a life skill that we'd be interested in, stuff like that. So this is what we do at our Thursday meetings. If this is like something that you feel that you can't commit to long term, we are always looking for someone to sponsor our Thursday night dinners. Um, and you can come and just sit with us and eat with us and commun- and have good conversation. There are really some great people yeah. who care. So uh, one way that you can get in contact with us is by our Facebook page. It is called SCAP, SCAP, S-C-C-A-P, Thriving Connections. Um, That's one way to get a hold of us. And finally, uh, you can go to sccap.org and you'll be able to find Thriving Connections under the list of programs. Or just call SCAP and say, hey, I'm interested in Thriving Connections. So feel free to call SCAP and let them know that you're interested in Thriving Connections. It's 812-339-3447. And the telephone number again is 812-339-3447. I'm Shakae Norris. And I am Eliza Carey. And we are captains from Thriving Connections. Where we're captaining our own ship. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.